Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm going to try today to make this as not boring as possible. That's my commitment to you. Um, some people naturally like history. Some have a, a, a mental uh, sort of enjoyment for learning what was, and others think of history and think, or just, you know, tap me when it's time to wake up. And so I'm going to try my very best to make this interesting. Uh, but we're going to look at the history in the broadest strokes of how you might find yourself today sitting in the midst of a congregation that is in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, which for most people, uh, we spoke about this last week, we live in a moment in history in which denominational names, even theologies, are really the least important they've been in 200 years, certainly, potentially 400 years. And we'll talk a little bit about why that might be once we get to the end of today, that some of that will be in the spirit of trying to make this interesting. Uh, but there is value, I think. There's, there's value in at least one conversation that looks at the overview of how we got here, uh, because it says a few things. It says, one, it teaches us about our predispositions, sort of what is our, uh, our initial thought regarding something theological or scriptural. How do we sort of initially get in that direction? I think it's also helpful because it exposes some of our weaknesses. It helps us see this is a blind spot that we likely have because of our tradition. And then we try to be mindful of that. We try to really work into those weak spots and we try to invite other people to help us see the things that we might not naturally see ourselves. So in that way, I think our history, uh, if we learn from it, can teach us something about what it means to be people of faith today. We'll see if uh, you uh, feel like I accomplished that in our time together. So... Presbyterianism, uh, if you've not ever heard, is essentially a word that describes uh, a way of governing ourselves. Different denominations have different ways of doing that. Catholics and Lutherans have bishops where one person is put in charge and that person sort of tells people what to do. Presbyterians have a more democratic form of governance, which makes us a, a very American kind of church. In fact, Lots of American government procedures mirror Presbyterian polity. So much like you uh, might know that we have three branches of government, Presbyterians have three branches of governance. Same exact thing um, where the Methodists and sorry, where the Lutherans and the Catholics have a bishop, a person that they put in charge. Presbyterians elect representatives who make those decisions on behalf of the body. So it's a very representative model. And this is different because this line here represents everything. So if you put Jesus's life here, death, resurrection, and here this bubble represents, I just blanked on it. This is bad. There we go. It's not an S, it's an F. Reformation, that small thing that happened. Okay, so here we forget this as Protestants. Uh, if you were with, with me for the disciples, we talked about lots of different churches. So there, there is some variation. But from Jesus all the way up to the Reformation, which is a, a thousand plus years, right? The church essentially functions on one governance model, whether it's the Roman church, whether it's the uh, Greek church, whether it's even the African church, it essentially functioned on the bishop model, wherever, where you had your bishop, they were put in charge, they made the decisions, and the bishops went all the way up to the head bishop, which 
if you know your Catholic Church, what's the name of the head bishop in the Catholic Church? Pope. The Pope, right. The Pope is the head bishop in the Catholic Church. So the Pope makes decisions that all of the other uh, bishops have to abide by, uh, theoretically. <laughs> so, so it's a very hierarchical model in that way. And that's the way that church functioned from the day of Jesus all the way down. And you might recognize that uh, we see that in the book of Acts. So when Paul is going around and he is seeing the gospel being lived out amongst the Gentiles, you remember who he has to go see? He has to go to Jerusalem and argue with Apostle Peter, right? Because the Apostle Peter is the guy who's going to make decisions that are going to have impacts all the way out for these Gentiles. So Paul is arguing with that bishop. And so that's the model all the way up to Reformation. And then there's this guy who was, suffice it to say, a very big thorn in the side of the Catholic Church by the name of, starts with an M, Martin Luther. There you go, Martin Luther. And Martin Luther is an interesting guy. We don't have time to sort of delve into the details of Martin Luther, but man, he's a fascinating character, both with some dark sides and some amazing gifted intellectual sides. It's all bundled into one. Uh, he's a fascinating character. But Martin Luther's basic contention was he read the book of Romans. He heard sort of the, the general context of what was happening in the church around him. And Martin Luther decided... In broad, broad strokes, we've made church about us. We made church about us making money off of people because there was multi-million dollar, in that day, multi-million dollar industries on getting people to give you money in the name of your salvation. That made Martin Luther a little squeamish, right? And he said, you know, fundamentally, we are asking people to do stuff and tell them, if you do this, you will be saved, which when... Martin Luther read Romans. He said, seems to me that salvation is more about Jesus than it is about us. Like, it seems that salvation more is about this word grace than it is about this kind of do this thing and salvation will come. And so he started writing about this. Of course, he had his thesis and, and he began this entire movement of asking questions about that propensity within the church. As you know, the Pope didn't care for that very much because that threatened the way that things should be. And so that had a falling out. Luther thought of himself as reforming the church, which means he thought that the, the church was going to get better, that the church was sick. And so it needed a little bit of treatment and it would recover. Notice Luther, when it came to finally in the end, him realizing, no, that we're not, this church isn't going to get reformed. We, we've split from that church. We, we don't get to go back. When he realized that, notice that he went back to having bishops in the leadership structure of the church. He wasn't trying to not be Catholic in structure. He just thought that the Catholics had given up the gospel for something else. Does that make sense? So in many ways, Martin Luther is a continuance of the Catholic church, but with a very different theology. Practice is the same, theology is different. You with me? Okay, very good. So, that is what happens in Reformation, which is this engine of the church changing. So here we have Luther, once again, uh, he's made these changes in terms of his theology, but the polity is the same, or the, the governance is the same. Then we get to this guy by the name of John Calvin. John Calvin 
is a conversation partner with Luther. And whereas Luther is uh, very much living at an intersection, he he's living in an intersection between the kings and the monarchies, and he's also a theologian, but he's also a pastor. John Calvin is a thinker. He is an academic. He's a PhD. He's, if we're going to put it in today's parlance, he's the guy at Harvard Seminary who's written 20 books and gets called to all the hoity-toity white tablecloth conferences as the keynote speaker, right? That That's the kind of person that John Calvin is. When he encounters faith, <coughs> excuse me, when he encounters faith, he's doing that from the perspective of pastor because he's serving in churches in different capacities, but he is an intellect. And, and whenever he's in the room, he's generally the smartest, <laughs> if not among the smartest in the room. So when John Calvin comes to his faith, he is thinking theologically, and he's allowing that theology to change his understanding of the structure of the church. So he comes into the scripture, and he's reading the scripture again, and it strikes him that the early church is filled with these words called, or with these people called elders. And he thought to himself, isn't it really weird that the Catholic Church that exists today is run by popes. But the early church made all of these leadership decisions by the people inside the church. Then he began to do all this original language work, he began to think, and he began to talk with other people, and he came to, to, to decide that maybe the church had invested too much power in individual people, aka the bishop, and he came to believe that the church from its inception was a group of people who together were discerning the voice of God. So, Calvin with others began thinking about ways in which the church may need to be reformed beyond its theology into its very practice of leadership. And they didn't move very far. So, you remember I told you for thousand plus years, the Pope was the person with the power and then the bishops underneath him, right? John Calvin didn't change that much. He said, let's replace the Pope and let's replace the bishops with elected bodies. So wherever there's a Pope, there's an elected group of people who serve that role. Wherever there's a bishop, there's an elected group of people who serve that role. Same exact structure. You still got the Pope in the Presbyterian Church. It's called the General Assembly, but it's an assembly. It's a council. It's people, uh, hundreds of people elected from across the United States come together to make decisions, but they make the decisions the Pope would make, okay? Same with the bishop. We, ha we don't have a bishop that oversees Presbyterian churches. We have what we call the presbytery. What's the presbytery? A group of elected people who gather together to make decisions. Same exact power, same exact structure. It's just instead of it being one person vested with that power, it's a group of people discerning together. You with me? So Calvin is now innovating. He's beginning to think that the structure that we inherited, it needs to change. Luther didn't get there. Luther thought our theology needs corrected, that we've strayed too far. Calvin says, I think maybe our structure needs some attention as well. So Calvin's doing this work. Um, there are people who actually take Calvin's thinking even farther so you get to uh, people who have gone so far, and we don't really have time to tease this out in a, a lot of detail, but Calvin does later provide a pathway 
um, that other theologians will take, which will lead to like modern day Baptists. Because you might know uh, the, the traditional Baptist model is that the congregation is the only body that exists. So Presbyterians, we've got people farther up the chain. Pastor Clinton and I, when we became pastors, we got drafted into this thing called presbytery, which serves the role of bishop, which means we have to go to meetings every year because that's part of the role, right? But Baptists, if you're a free church, there's no meetings you have to go to. It's your church. You govern yourself. There's this thing called the Southern Baptist Church, where it's a little bit different. We don't have time to talk about all that. But the, but the Congregationalist Baptist Church, it is if you are a leader in that church, you have the sole power to make every decision that could ever be made, and, and that is a thing. And um, it has its pros and cons. We're not going to talk about that. But it's different from our model, where we try to distribute leadership, and we try to distribute power. Uh, because much like the narrative about the United States, which, by the way, we could talk about some of the founding church people and, and, and their faith and lack of faith and all that kind of stuff. The thing that interests me about the early founding of the United States was, regardless of their their faith understanding, the founding fathers of the United States had a very clear understanding of the power of sin and brokenness. And whether they succeed or not for all time, who knows, but they did a spectacular job of trying to keep people contained so that nobody could rule over everybody else was their, was their intention, right? So with Presbyterians, one of John Calvin's core theological beliefs was the brokenness of humanity. So he said, we need to find ways to keep our churches from essentially lording it over other people, where you get a bad bishop who starts telling people, this is what you have to do. He wanted to try to find ways that we could sort of create firewalls so that at the end of the day, not one person's sin could rule over the rest of the body. Does that make sense? That's a very practical sort of way of living out the faith rooted upon his theological idea. Okay, so that's John Calvin. Um, where Presbyterianism really became Presbyterianism was in Scotland. And we don't have a lot of time to talk about the history there, but you know, Scotland and England have a very long, tenuous history with one another, you know, back and forth and all these kinds of things. And there was a season where the monarchy of England and Scotland were at each other's throats at the point of civil war. I mean, the actual conflicts, you know, blood spilt on the battlefield kind of thing. And it's in this season that John Locke takes up John Calvin's writing. He begins to formulate a very practical sort of church structure with a lot of detail built out and into it. And it becomes one of the voices in England fighting against its Presbyterians versus the Church of England, which the Church of England, as you may know, and this is not a slight for those of you listening online, this is not a slight, but Church of England is the Catholic Church exported to England because, you know, the king was told that he couldn't remarry and he wanted to remarry. So he said, see you later, Pope. We're making our own church. But they just did copy-paste. And they, they got the Catholic Church with all of its structures. They just put it in England. So here you have the Presbyterians led by John Locke reading John Calvin who said, we're not going to have that Catholic theology and that Catholic structure. We're not going to do that. And they fought it out. And when I say they fought it out, I mean literally they fought it out. Um, this is one of the distinctives of history that we miss today because you might just decide, I'm going to go down to that church that looks a little different, but is essentially the same as the church that 
maybe I had gone to down the street or gone to in another city, we don't think about the name on the sign. But as this theology was being worked out, it's not we have room to disagree and we're trying to figure out. It was, well, we'll see you with our swords drawn uh, because it was a life and death kind of conversation in that time. So John Locke works out this theology. This is happening in the midst of massive conflict with the Church of England. And then uh, essentially uh, in 1690 is the date Presbyterian, Presbyterianism is adopted as the formal faith of Scotland. So it, it becomes a, the national religion. And um, interestingly, this has a way of making the Scottish government itself democratic. Because once again, uh, religion at this time is a substantial part of the social order. So when you make your religious faith democratic in its form, it essentially makes Scotland a place where those who are elected are the ones who have the most power, and it transforms their way of considering governance. Interesting little factoid. So, anyways, Presbyterianism makes its jump to America in the 17th century, Scottish and English settlers. By the way, remember, the majority of people who came to the United States in the beginning were people who did not want to live where they were living before, right? For whatever reason. So, we have a higher concentration than normal of the misfits. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But if you were in England and you were Presbyterian, you were a misfit. Because in England, the Church of England won. They won. It became the national religion and Presbyterians were pushed out. So Presbyterians, much like, and we have, uh, you know, lots of other, um, the Mennonites and the Amish and, and sort of those modern um, examples, the Brethren, all of those are also examples of people who were pushed out in that time and came to America looking for a place of refuge, looking for a place where they wouldn't be the misfit because of the Church of England, because of some of those forces at play. So these folks, in higher number than uh, you might expect, come to the United States. And um, then you have, throughout the 18th century, just this massive expansion throughout the colonies. Um, one of the few Presbyterian claims to fame is that we are the denomination uh, that was the home for Jonathan Edwards, which I suspect you might know the name. Um, if you do know Jonathan Edwards, I also suspect that you might think of one particular sermon. Can anyone tell me what sermon I might be thinking of with Jonathan Edwards? Sinners and the Angry Hands of God is his uh, place. If you haven't heard this, well, you might as well hear it. So, uh, John Edwards wrote thousands of sermons. I, I mean, and was it, uh, quite frankly, is considered to be uh, the greatest among, if not the greatest American theologian to have ever lived. So his theology is unbelievably deep. But he wrote in a time called the Great Awakening in the United States, where there's these massive uh, revivals happening all throughout the colonies. There's this uh, outpouring of passion and uh, a deep connection to the faith. And John Calvin's a Presbyterian. And if you know anything about Presbyterians, we, once again, like John Calvin, we are very intellectual people. We, we like to think through the faith because for us, that's a, that's a center, that the gospel can be trusted and that we can ask good questions and we can trust God to lead us where it goes. So John and Edwards is sitting here. He's uh, preaching in this small little rural church and people 
start going to these meetings and crazy stuff is happening. People are rolling around. People are being healed. Just massive crowds are gathering and strange things are happening. So John Calvin brings his, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, sorry, brings his intellect and he's he's asking questions about this and trying to, to figure it out. And he goes back to his congregation. He preaches this sermon. And he said, uh, each person is a sinner, horrible and broken to their very core. And they're being held by God's hands. And he said, all it would take is for God to let go and us in the hands of an angry God, he would let those sinners go and they would all go to eternal hellfire and damnation, which would be a difficult sermon, except for the fact that John Calvin, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, so many Johns, John Edwards wrote out his sermons verbatim and was supposedly one of the driest preachers you'd ever heard. Like he read in monotone, simple voice with no change in pace or cadence, and this was his preaching. So to compensate for the fact that he was an uninteresting preacher, he made his sermons unbelievably graphic. And so, unfortunately, the Presbyterian, you know, premier thinker is remembered for the sermon in which he almost gloried in God dropping all of the sinners to hellfire and damnation, which is not the sum of his work, but it's the thing he's remembered for. Okay, so that's a little bit of a divergence. But, um, so Presbyterians formed the first seminary in the United States. It was called Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary later turned into Princeton University because like other seminaries, they secularized. And um, that may have a sound of being negative, but bear with me for just a moment. Once again, we're, the, we're a thinking people. This is built into our identity. So when we started the seminary to train pastors, the first in the country, by the way, Jonathan Edwards was uh, one of the first presidents of that seminary. We very quickly moved beyond church to medicine to education, to all of these other fields that were growing at the time, because we believe that was part of God's work in the world, that if these things were going to grow, we thought we should know about them as people of faith. But as it went, those things grew, and at some point there was a schism between all of this other stuff and the seminary, and so now Princeton Seminary founded its own thing, and the university kept doing its own thing. So Presbyterians... Uh, make the first seminary in America, and we are among the first and most mobile branches of the faith in the United States, which is an odd thing to say today. We'll talk about that once we get down here. But um, in the early days, there were not enough pastors for churches. Uh, people in the colonies, especially as uh, we had our westward expansion, were leaving the sort of comforts of the East Coast. They came out here living a very difficult life. Not that I need to tell you about that. And as they get here, they want to have a church that reflects their values and they want to have a place that is also connected to this larger thinking tradition. And um, so as they kept going, there became this greater and greater need for pastoral leadership. And so I'm sure you've heard of circuit riders, right? The, the preachers who would travel. The Presbyterian Church has always been a stickler about very high standards for its pastors. So that was a problem. Like we couldn't get enough pastors through the system to get out here. So we would then entrust, we would send a pastor, and this is the case now for this congregation. This is where we come into First Press Spirit Lake. 
which came about in the late 1800s. Essentially, we demanded that the church have a a core set of elders or, or beginning leaders. They would petition to become a congregation, and then the Presbyterian church would say, well, I'm coming up with a name here, John Mark, the pastor, uh, he lives here, so he's going to have to circuit ride those six churches until we can get somebody. So what would happen is churches would begin with those elders preaching, which I think is an astonishing factor. Just think, you're signing up on day one, we're going to have a pastor here occasionally, but I'm going to be preaching. That's how much they cared about having a, a church that reflected those deeper values. And so uh, time went on. Finally, the Presbyterian leadership sort of caught up to the churches. And uh, you have what is today with churches all throughout uh, the Midwest, um, West, and then uh, quite a bit on the East Coast. Interestingly, uh, I, I would say demographically, we have uh, probably less Presbyterian churches in the Midwest than we have on the coast. But that's, uh, that's also changing, which we might talk about. Um, I'm going to skip through a lot of history for the sake of trying to keep this interesting. And I promise I'm trying to keep my promise. We're going to get to something interesting here. Um, the Presbyterian Church was affected, as all churches in America were, by the Civil War. We, being removed and in the North, if you grew up in the North, we have a, a little bit of a sense of being removed from that history just because most of those battles didn't happen in our backyard, or we might not have a direct family connection to someone who served. But you know, that in terms of the death and destruction, the separation of families, the Civil War reshaped the entire life of the United States. And Presbyterians who came and, and were just incredibly active in this expansion, we split right down the middle over the issue of slavery. The Southern Church made it clear that uh, our theology needed to, enshrined in our Book of Order and in our rules, needed to approve the practice of slavery. And the Northern Church said, that that was an unacceptable thing. And so they said, we, we can't keep doing this together, and they split. So for a majority of the 20th century, the Presbyterian Church functioned in two separate bodies, South and North. They had different books of order, they had different confessions, they were different churches. And it wasn't actually until 1983, which this is going to date me, I realize that. I know that this is in everybody's lifespan here pretty much. Uh, I was uh, four years away from being born, so I was born in 1987, so I know that puts me where I'm at, but that's the truth. Um, so I, I was just four years after the reunification of the church. So it's been within you know my lifetime, it's always been, um, but what that number does not honestly portray, uh, 1983, is the fact that since the 1960s, about 1965, both churches had been in a period of decline. So what is an unfortunate statistical sort of uh, blip on the map is that 1983, it looks like the Presbyterian Church was huge (laughs) because you combined two groups of people. But if you looked at them individually and combined the statistic of membership decline, and then you look at them after 1983, and you look at the statistics of membership decline, the statistics are exactly the same. 3% every year since the 60s. So the Presbyterians, which were once the largest uh, Christian denomination in the United States, not counting Roman Catholics, uh, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, 
uh, we are essentially on this sort of uh, lower decline, which uh, I'm hoping that maybe at the end we can have a little bit of a conversation about as well as sort of um, tease out what that might mean. Uh, the only other thing I want to share with you before, just by nature of the history here, uh, which I think is really neat, is that um, Presbyterians have been missional. We've been very mission-minded since the very beginning. One of the ways that we've done that is through our pursuit of the intellectual arts. Let me just call it that. So you'll find throughout the country today schools with the name Presbyterian and hospitals with the name Presbyterian. We have been responsible for the formation of tens of universities and even more than that of uh, hospitals. And that has come directly from the fact that Presbyterians have believed that the gospel sends us out to use the brain that we have to help people to the best extent that we have. Um, but we have been committed not just to sort of national mission, but we've been committed to international mission. Uh, I think one of the cool aspects of our history is that the largest Protestant group of Christians in the Asian world is in South Korea, and they are Presbyterian. Uh, because Presbyterians uh, sent missionaries to South Korea, built meaningful relationships there, and have uh, essentially created uh, this, the, in a country that's otherwise not Christian, the largest Christian group within that nation. And what is interesting is when I went to seminary, I got to meet a lot of um, both South Koreans as well as American immigrant Koreans, maybe second, third generation. Some of the largest churches in the Presbyterian Church USA in our country are Korean churches, which I think is really neat. So anyways, whew, here we go. So how are we going to make this interesting? Uh, the, the point I wanted to make with you today as we look at our history is we both have this gift of the intellect and the weakness of the intellect. I, I want to deal with the weakness first, and then I want to turn to the gift. Where, where Luther was practical, he was working on fixing this problem that the Catholic Church is rife with all of this corruption and money laundering, right? He was interested in solving a practical problem. John Calvin was interested in figuring out how do we look at the scriptures in a new way and see it transforming our theology. And so we're a people who thinks a lot, too much, right? The reality is we live in a moment where you don't have time to think three years about what the color of the carpet should be. Though we would love to do that. We would love to pay somebody to come and do a talk on color theory and how shapes affect the, the form of faith. And we would love to sit down with some teacher to talk about our curriculum and say, well, it's strong on scripture in the Old Testament, but that New Testament stuff that's not very reflective of the gospel. And especially if you're looking at the Latin, then yeah, I mean, we would love to do that. But the reality is we live in a world that's going like this, right? And you will not be surprised to know that in the midst of COVID, Presbyterian churches nationwide got hit hard because when it changes every week, the thinking people struggle, right? When it's not, when it's not clear and you can't call the expert and you can't have a lecture, just as a, as an organized group of people, we really struggled with that. What, what do we do? Wait, we're not going to have a committee meeting about everything that needs decided. This is a weakness that comes when you're when you're so thought oriented. You see what I'm saying? 
they're, they're, now that's not to say that you ever leave the thought behind. I mean, that's, that's a gift that we have. But there is a danger in becoming so fixated on we're going to figure it out. Another example. Uh, this won't surprise you. Presbyterian churches in the last 20 years have been horrible at planting churches. Because we go look at a neighborhood and we're like, well, let's go get sociological demographic studies of the neighborhood. And then we do it. Then we go have round tables with all the people in the neighborhood. Do you want a church? Oh, they don't want a church. Okay. And then we, then we get the first meeting. We're like, we're going to order pizza. You need to have a committee meeting. What kind of pizza are we going to have? Is it going to be pepperoni or no? We need to do statistics. Can we got to figure out maybe people like beef? I mean, we struggle because we overthink. Have I made that point too strongly, right? <laughs> then on the flip side of that is the great strength of the Presbyterian way, which is when we live in a world filled with division, misinformation, people who want to say, well, it's this way because I'm in this tribe, not because it is that way, right? When we live in a world that's more interested in your affiliation than what's true, Presbyterians stand and say, no, there is something true, and that's Jesus Christ. And everything that's true comes from Jesus Christ. And so we're committed to that as a center, and we believe that thoughtful people can travel from there. Now, that's, I think, one of the great gifts of our denomination is historically we've been a very big tent. That's changed, and we can talk in uh, future years just simply because as other denominations have, splits, changes, blah, 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 blah. But theologically, we don't expect people within our church to agree on every issue because, good Lord, we are intelligentsia to the core, so everybody disagrees about something because that's the way it works, Okay. We don't expect everyone to agree, but we expect everyone to live under Jesus Christ. That's one of the great strengths of our faith has been at the end of the day, we have made allowances for different interpretations and we've allowed people to be elected who honestly disagree at these councils and they honestly fight things out. The problem is sometimes some people win. Sometimes one side of the argument wins and that makes a determination for other folks. That's the way that our system works. Like it or not, we don't have a bishop making that decision, but our elected people do it. I mean, we all know that because politicians pass laws that we disagree with all the time, right? But at the end of the day, we have, I think at our best, tried to submit our intellect to serve other people. We've tried to, to think deeply about the faith and, and to make that something practical. At our worst, we've become the frozen chosen which if you've ever heard that, people come into our sanctuaries and they say, man, you guys are dry and lifeless and stop talking about stuff that you think and start talking about living, right? At our worst, that's our weakness. At our best, we try to be a place where people are inspired and encouraged and challenged so that they live out into that world that they live by whatever vocation they have, by whatever family they have, by whatever friendships they have, and that they use that faith that is formed in our sanctuary to be people who go take that out into the world. And I want to pause for questions here, but um, one of the great troubles of this moment is um, Presbyterians are not alone in this, um, but we are just being completely hammered in the modern world. Um, congregations are at the brink of closure at an alarming rate. And so denominationally, there's a great amount of disarray. Um, just there's a lot of there's a lot of death and dying happening right now in churches. And so electing leaders is a very difficult 
thing to do right now. So when we get to the conversation, it won't be today, but when we get to the conversation about, so what did Presbyterians say about this issue or this issue or this issue? Um, the thing that you need to know is what Presbyterians say has never been less of a thing. Uh, our, our bodies are shrinking. Our leadership structures are somewhat buckling under this weight. We weren't made to get smaller. We were made to get bigger. And so as that, as that system crumbles, essentially leadership decisions have been coming down the line. What used to be handled at the top, uh, sort of like big national decisions are now being passed down to congregations. So in the history of Presbyterianism, congregations now make more decisions for themselves than ever in the history of Presbyterianism, all the way back to John Calvin and John Locke. And many of the issues that churches deal with today are now being addressed on a congregational level. Does that make sense? How that, how that structure works? So, uh, that's the practical nature of it. I'd be interested in uh, real practical questions that you might be interested in. Could be historical, could be the way that we govern, could be the pros, cons, could be anything. Hmm. I hear it matriculating. Okay. Is, is this is the Presbyterian way of teaching the, the gospel? Right. It seems to me is relatively close to the uh, Methodist. Hmm. So that's a. Except maybe in the hierarchy and how things, but that's very similar too. They do have bishops. Right. Yeah, but to your point, yeah, there's the structure thing um, that's different. Um, Really, where where John uh, Wesley and John Calvin, so many Johns, so many Johns. Good grief, John Wesley, John Locke, John Calvin, John, 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 Um, Jonathan Edwards. So Wesley. let, let me frame it this way. Have you ever heard the word um, uh, affective? So, so you have the intellect and you have the affective or the, the feeling, the heart center. So if you have the head and you have the heart, right? John Calvin was relentless about the head to the point that sometimes he beat up people's hearts. <laughs> he said, I don't care what you feel. This is the way that is. That was Calvin's way. Wesley's way was in small groups and in and in service, one of his great spiritual gifts was his um, his natural commitment to mission and witness. A lot of people don't know this, but he uh, he at one point in his life said, "The amount of money I'm making now is enough," and he would never take a penny more than that. Every penny he made, that people would give him money. He said, "I don't need that money." He would give it away. He he was just unbelievably mission minded. What. What Wesley had and what Wesley's brother had was this, this experience of the faith that it should transform your heart. And he found in prayer and he found in relationship and he found in community this place where the practice and action of the hands and feet were the central component of your, of your life and the gospel being lived out in your midst. And so for him, um, 
people breaking down in worship services, crying, people um, passionately praying in front of a group. I mean, it's Wesley's theology that makes the Great Awakening possible because of this beautiful heart kind of connection that flows out of him. Presbyterians always looked at that with a side eye. We were like, why are you crying? That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We, we were trying to protect the, the, the way of thinking, once again, to the weakness of leaving people's heart out of their faith. That's a substantial danger. And so... Um, whereas I'll be honest, if a Presbyterian, I, I'm an adopted Presbyterian, so I don't really care that much about the whole whatevers, but like Presbyterians who are all in would critique Methodism as being like, would you guys just stop crying and think that through a little bit? Uh, w- w- would you, would you stop being all about the feeling and would you, you know, use your brain? God gave you, uh, now that's not fair, right? But just that would sort of be the distinctive. That said, in terms of the American westward expansion of the faith, there is no denominational groups uh, who are essentially greater at their effectiveness than Methodists and Presbyterians. Uh, you have Catholics that made that move as well, but that was largely by demographic. Catholics have been largely more about family than they have been about evangelism. Methodists and Presbyterians were kind of opposite sides of the same coin, both being nimble and quick. and um, that's one of the things that kind of bugs me, to be honest with you, is historically Presbyterians in America have been high up the list of people who were able to be creative and nimble and solve problems. That's how we came out to the West, one of the hardest places to live in the country, and we've made churches here. And then the 21st century comes, and we can't figure out how to change the flavor of our coffee. Like, you know, that that's the strange historical moment that we live in is we were people where that kind of creativity, that kind of live on the horizon, live into God's plan for today, that was in our DNA. And now we find ourselves looking around asking, well, who can teach us how to get out of this? And that's that's sort of the moment which we live. We need to be done. That's the warning. Thank you for being with us, everybody. Um, We will continue the conversation uh, next week. Thanks for being here.